Hello, friends. It is me, Amber Magnolia Hill, and this is the Medicine Stories Podcast, episode 10, which is kind of a small, big deal. Thanks for being here. Today, I'm going to be sharing my conversation with Katie Bowman. I am excited. It was really fun. And I sure hope that it changes people's lives for the better and the way that Katie's work has changed so many people's lives, including my own. So if you don't know about Katie, she is a biomechanist by training and a problem solver at heart. Katie has the ability to blend a scientific approach with straight talk about sensible solutions and an unwavering sense of humor which is so nice, right? When someone's funny in their books and in their podcasts and they're talking, earning her legions of followers. Her award-winning blog and podcast, which the podcast was just renamed from Katie Says to Move Your DNA, and the blog has been retired, but it's still there online, reach hundreds of thousands of people every month and thousands have taken her live classes. Her books have been critically acclaimed and translated worldwide. So you can find Katie's work at nutritiousmovement.com and Homegirl has so much content out there, so many blog posts, so many podcast episodes and eight books. So there's just so much to dive into, so much good stuff. Um, I have read four of her books, Diastasis Recti, which is what first introduced me to her work. I realized that I have a diastasis from um, being pregnant, which is like a when the muscles down the center of the belly uh, split, you know, and and widen and separate. Uh, move your DNA, which to me seems like a really good intro to her work. For me, it it has kind of given me the bigger picture of ancestral movement. Don't just sit there, which is all about dynamic office spaces and work environments and whole body barefoot, which is about transitioning well to minimal footwear. So this this has all been like so revolutionary for me because as I tell Katie, I have always joked that I am prone to stillness. And it's funny because just yesterday, my interview on the Self-Care Club podcast came out and we had recorded that like four months ago. So it was interesting listening to how much has changed since we recorded it. But um, one of the things I say to Natalie in that podcast is that I'm just not a physical person. And like, how funny is that? Of course, I'm a physical person. I have a body, you know? And so it's really, I've really been unraveling this like lifelong story I've had around not being a physical person. I mean, I, I am very non-athletic. Like I am embarrassing on a team of people, you know, um, I, I remember my mom telling me I was in soccer when I was five and she told me that I was just, I literally never once kicked the ball when the ball like came toward me, I would run away. <laughs> you know, I was scared. I'm still kind of scared of balls flying through the air or coming at me. Um, but she told me that I would just like literally lie in the grass, like singing to the flowers on the soccer field, which of course that story is like really meaningful me, meaningful for me now as an herbalist. But um, it's funny that the other side of that story that like I'm really bad with my body and really non-physical has 
carried with me and I've bought into it for so long. And it's really been like to my detriment that I've done that. And so what, what Katie's work around movement has done is really helped to break me out of that belief system and this physical patterning in my body that has been still and sedentary for so long. And one of the things that I most appreciate about her is that she's broken me out of this idea that the answer is exercise. Because like so many people, I fucking hate exercise and I don't have the time for it. I truly cannot take like an hour or or longer if I want to drive to the gym and then shower afterwards and drive back home to exercise every day. I just can't do that. So movement is not exercise. Uh, exercise is movement, but movement is so much broader than just this time we take out in the middle of the day to go do this really hard thing that actually in the long run, we usually tend to do like really repetitive movements anyway, when we're exercising. So it's not doing a whole lot for us. And then we're totally sedentary the rest of the day. Anyway, we talk about all this in the podcast and Katie has talked about it elsewhere, but it's just been like, a huge paradigm shift for me to be like, oh, I can be moving constantly throughout my day. I can always be moving. I'm moving right now as I'm speaking into this microphone. I'm moving my body. This is an exercise, but it's movement. And my body, my cells, my DNA on the deepest level craves this and comes to and expects it because it's what my ancestors did for 99% of human history. So what has happened through all these years of being prone to stillness and being sedentary is what happens to so many people, I have built up some really deep pain patterns. And so then I get myself into an interesting place where I realize that movement is the answer where I'm afraid to move because I know that when I've tried to move things out in the past, when I've done certain yoga or exercises, it actually makes my pain worse. So I talk about this rather than going into this in this introduction, which I'm going to try to keep kind of short today. I've recorded a Patreon talk all about my history with pain, what elements of Katie's work I've been incorporating into my life to help address my pain, and what I'm doing to work through the tension in the fascia and my muscles so that I can move without fear, so that I can bring movement into my life while I am working through these pain issues and finding the balance between the two, like as the pain ebbs and gets ever smaller and smaller in my life, the movement is allowed to flow and get bigger and become this dynamic, beautiful, wonderful part of a human life as it should be. So that is on Patreon for supporters at the $2 and up level as, as the best things always are there. It's patreon.com slash medicine stories. Um, and I, I talk specifically about like what I am doing for the pain and this awesome resource I found to help every night after my daughters are in bed now. I'm down on the floor working and getting this pain out and it's been amazing. And speaking of Patreon, I've got a giveaway going there right now. There's nothing you have to do to enter other than just be a patron at any level, giving away two of the Bedtime Bear Sleep and Dream Elixirs. So you can learn more about that there, or you can see my shop at mythicmedicine.love to learn more about this specific medicine. It's delicious and dreamy, (laughs) and it's almost sold out, actually. So the two people who win a bottle are going to be lucky. 
Um, if you like the podcast, check out our Facebook group, please. Um, it's called Medicine Stories, and it's it's really getting quite active. There are multiple posts every day now, people just sharing their own stories around things that we talk about here on the podcast or asking specific advice, questions about herbalism, sharing ancestral stories. Um, people are getting really deep there, you know, like we do on this show, and it's been super heartening watching this community grow. I love it there. It's like, thank you for offering a safe and um, soul nourishing space on Facebook away from the insanity filling up my feed every day. Uh, A little reminder, I haven't talked about this really at all here on the show, but I'm going to be teaching three classes at the Good Medicine Confluence coming up soon in May in Durango, Colorado. There are tickets still left. Just, you know, actually go to planthealer.org if you want to find out more. I'd love to see you there. I will be interviewing Wolf, who is the partner of Kiva Rose, and the two of them created this conference and have been running it for years now. I'll be interviewing him next month. And then after that, I'm interviewing um, Vicky. Vicky Salcido, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, Vicky, I've only seen it spelled, Cobb, who's Grandmother's Medicine, who is now teaching as well. Yay, I can't wait to see her. And um, so there'll be more Good Medicine Confluence uh, talk coming up on this podcast. I'm also teaching, co-teaching a class with Mila Prince, who was the first ever guest on this podcast in episode two. Um, there's still, or there's new batch of extra potent elderberry elixir available in our shop again at mythicmedicine.love. Um, we made a bunch and sold out really quickly after the Stephen Herod Buner interview came out in episode eight, since he and I talked about viruses and viral life forms, we had made a bunch to coincide with the release of that podcast and I'm glad we did. They sold out really quickly. And so we've made more. If you want to check that out, go there. If you want to learn more about how viruses work, what happened during the great flu pandemic of 1918, you can listen to that podcast episode or um, check out my blog. It's um, the first, I, I shot a video of myself talking about cold and flu. And so that's there on my website as well. If you just want to get deeper into, um, kind of the bigger picture of that, of an herbalist perspective on cold and flu. And finally, here in this intro today, I just want to talk just a, a brief, brief little like sowing seeds for things to think about and uh, maybe future conversations in the herb learning segment today. I want to talk about regulation. Oh, a hawk just flew outside my window. So this has been coming up a lot lately. Regulation is, and actually has always been, a really hot topic in the world of herbalism. Some people are for it. I don't know any of those people, but I've heard about them. Uh, I think most herbalists understand that it is a very slippery slope and things, we would just be so limited as herbalists if there was really widespread regulation in the US. And I understand that like there's good reasons to have it. I really do. Like I, I I'm kind of a structured person and a rule follower and I see all the reasons it could be helpful. But so what's been happening lately is that 
people who are selling herbal medicines on Shopify have been getting shut down. And it's like they just go online, their shop is gone. They check their email and Shopify is like, your shop's gone, sorry. Um, And it's the payment processor Stripe who is saying that you can't sell, quote, pseudo-pharmaceuticals online through them. They will not process your payments. So this is like beyond infuriating to me. And it's so insane to call herbal medicines pseudo-pharmaceuticals as if pharmaceutical medicine is the norm. And anything falling outside that realm is um, like fake, fake, fake medicine. You know, of course, it's total bullshit. Of course, pharmaceuticals are actually pseudo plant medicines. And many of them are modeled after or directly taken from or synthesized from plants. And that the whole like foundation of the pharmaceutical industry started with taking ideas and things and medicinal constituents from plants. Like plant medicines are, of course, how human beings have addressed their needs since time immemorial this is like kind of what katie and i are talking about today ancestral movement plants are ancestral medicine and in most of the world still today herbs are people's primary medicine this isn't our alternative medicine you know i kind of bristle at that phrase too and kind of hate it that it's the best way to categorize my podcast on itunes every time i open up my podcast app and see like medicine stories alternative medicine i'm like ugh, that's not that doesn't feel good that's not exactly right but it's the best i have um so it it's just I don't know. It's just insane. And uh, Stripe, I don't know if they're owned by Wells Fargo, but they are connected to Wells Fargo. And so just another reason to divest from big banks. If you can put your money into a small local credit union, if there's one available, Um, this is a big deal. It's really sad. It's happening like every day right now. It seems like they're really going after people really strongly. Um, Etsy has been shutting people down as well. They have this whole list of herbs that you can't have in your medicines. It's like, who made this list? What were they even basing this on? Like, I, it's weird. It's weird. And it's scary because for a lot of us, this is our sole source of income. I'm not on Shopify, but I am on Stripe. I do use Stripe through my Squarespace site. And so I'm already thinking like, okay, what am I going to do? You know, how are we, what are we going to do when this happens to us? Um, and so just something to think about, you know, it's it's another reason to learn how to make herbal medicine yourself and to teach people how to make herbal medicine if it's something that you know how to do. This is something I would love to move into more as my as my toddler grows up. And I have more time for things like that. Um, As Mila Prince said on the So You Want to Be a Witch podcast, like no herbalist I know, she says no herbalist she knows, I would say very few herbalists that I know are super stoked on making and selling herbal medicines for the rest of their lives. It's really like labor intensive and just, we would rather teach people how to do it. We would rather educate people on how to make their own medicines and take care of themselves. So it's something to keep in mind that the herbal medicines you love buying online might not be there forever. They might not be there next week. Um, So, you know, give those herbalists all the love and support you can and teach yourself how to make them. Take some classes. Okay, without further rambling on my part, 
let's hear from the fabulous Katie Bowman. Oh, I forgot to tell you what we talk about. I like doing that because my hope is that it keeps you listening for longer. So we talk about ancestral movement and stepping outside ourselves and our culture and looking at the wider scope of time and how movement is not exercise, like I said, why exercisers are still mostly sedentary. They're still like literally categorized as sedentary people by scientists, even though they're like, but I work out an hour a day. And they have just as many injuries and health problems as non-exercisers. And I love this metaphor. Katie talks about exercise as monoculture and movement as permaculture. Uh, We talk about Katie's brilliant concept of stacking your life, which is like integrating movement into everything else in your life, which I have been doing really successfully. It's so much easier than I would have thought. Katie's connection to the great-grandmother she was named after, the recent unassisted home death of Katie's father, and the parallels Katie saw between that and birth, and the many other deaths in Katie's life within a 12-month period, and what she learned from these losses, and how her movement practice kept her in a state of grace throughout the process. Uh, We talk about Katie's recurring whale dream and the moment she lived it in real life, and our reverence for the capacity and consciousness of cetaceans. Uh, Whales have been my deepest animal resonance for as long as I can remember, like since very early childhood. For me, it's mostly the blue whale. For Katie, it's humpbacks. Um, But I think we both love all whales, and I always feel like it is very special for me to connect with another another whale lover i mean i don't even know if love is the right word it's like big reverence yeah that's really that's really more of the word and just this extreme fascination with the intelligence and capabilities of these incredible beings and katie says something like i just i just know that they're the key i don't know to what but uh, yeah i know exactly what you mean i feel the same way so really um so satisfying to my soul to get to talk to someone about whales and uh katie helps me break through my limited thinking around some of the things that i spend most of my time doing while sitting still and finally she shares the conscious practice of paying attention to what captures her imagination this is a very beautiful concept very inspiring i think to anyone who listens to this podcast you will totally resonate with what she's saying and want to integrate this practice into your life so all right let's hear from katie bowman hi katie welcome thank you for having me amber yeah, I'm really, really excited to talk to you. I've just kind of been floating on a cloud all morning, not even nervous like I usually am, um, because you have you've changed my life so much in the last like month, maybe four or five weeks since I discovered your work and found your books, and I feel deeply grateful to you for that. You felt hard for movement, huh? Yes, because. <laughs> I love it. For for years, for like my whole life, I have joked, haha, that I'm prone to stillness. 
mm. and like had that as part of my story you know it's just who I am I'm just like really dreamy and in my mind and I like to read and observe things and so just being able to switch that story for myself and um, start working on these long-term pain patterns that I have due to that stillness has been wonderful so thank you thank you yeah so I, I thought that I would start there's so much I want to talk about your work and then talk about you personally but I, I thought we could start weaving those two things together by I just want to ask you can you explain what ancestral movement is for us and why ancestral movement is such a focus of your work well, ancestral movement is um, a term that's often used to kind of um, put a definition around all the movements that used to be prevalent in almost every human's experience. So um, <clears throat> we all are descendants of hunter-gatherer populations, and these are populations that didn't have any of the conveniences that we have. So it's re it's sometimes really hard to imagine just how much movement we're talking about because I imagine everyone listening to this grew up with um, more easily acquired food, house, clothes. Like we didn't have to build anything really from scratch. We're not out foraging day to day. And so ancestral movements is that way of, of saying there is a way that human beings have moved historically and I always like to kind of qualify the idea of ancestral movement because it sometimes seems like I'm talking about humans a long time ago but I also like to point out that there are humans on this planet who still move in this way so it's not extinct types of movements they it's just not and for our culture the the closest we can get back to them is really kind of looking back through our own history, but they are still modern movements. Modern humans are doing them today, but more of that was done on the planet, you know, thousands and thousands, hundred thousand years ago. And so that's what they are. It's, it's the long distance walking. It's the daily gathering of water and the gathering of food and the processing, the manual processing of food. Um, everything is not as edible as you'd imagine without rigorous physical labor to go into mashing or masticating, um, leaching, drying, you know, things that require lots of exchange of physical labor for the end thing that we call food. Um, carrying, you know, we wouldn't, we would be essentially container free. So there wouldn't be as much long-term storage. And so you're bringing everything with you when you went anywhere or the things that you weren't bringing with you, you were fashioning once you got where you were going, like the, the regular putting up of of shelters and for anyone who's ever done any wilderness camping, especially in, in the weather or the rain, gathering the wood, you know, to burn, to stay warm. All, all those things are um, movement based. They require movements. And, uh, and I'm thinking of other ones too, breastfeeding, you know, from the, from the child's perspective, the, the mechanics of extracting milk, from a breast that goes into the movements that again were the movements that shaped the the shape that we humans have now and so my work i guess went that way because i studied movement at university 
And I was interested in where pain and injury come from. And which, of course, a lot of medicine and allopathic traditions are also interested in. Um, we're, we tend to be more interested in therapies now because with the with the demand for people who don't feel well in their bodies, I mean, therapy takes precedence, but at the same time, it's really hard to understand a biological issue like why are so many people in pain or why are we seeing an increase in these diseases or why are we seeing these diseases in these populations of humans but not this populations of human over here so there's a lot of comparative um analyzing that goes on so i just in studying movement i studied it traditionally like oh if you have you know back pain or or if you know, 80% of women who are pregnant experience pain in their pelvis or their low back or an issue in their pelvic floor. Why? And I started to then do cross-cultural data and and compare different populations. And then I just started to go, okay, well, who's the ultimate population to compare it to? Because the idea that humans were kind of decreasing in physical function over a long period of time that's interesting and it falls under uh, like evolutionary mismatch science in biology and then so i just started to i i guess just really try to put myself in a position and look at the things that were in my life as um something that not everyone had access to you know it's really hard to not take a closet of clothes or a refrigerator of food or a store or a faucet or a toilet because they've been in every single day of my experience it's very easy to quickly become biased to the idea that this is you know a normal human experience and so for me that ancestral perspective just keeps it keeps one foot in someone else's shoes a little bit so that you know, for scientific purposes, I can always make sure to to understand when I'm talking about humans, I'm not really talking about humans. I'm talking about a very small subset of humans, my culture in this particular time. So and set like putting ancestral around it is just a way to say we're talking about humans over a very long period of time or else we start to just perceive this, you know, what we're experiencing right now, podcasting, you know, or or being comfortable inside while we're podcasting as the norm, which is challenging for biology to make any headway to um, figuring out what's going on with with nature, with uh, with other species as well as humans. I remember when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter 12 years ago, reading that so, you know, first of all, we were hunter gatherers for 99% of human history. And physiologically, we are still the exact same species as we were then. But our culture and the things around us have changed so much in just the last few hundred years or the 10,000 years since agriculture. But physiologically, we are the same beings. So we need the same things to be healthy. And I really took that in. And you had natural birth and breastfed both my daughters and using whole foods and animals as um, whole plants and animals as food and medicine. But I was really missing this movement piece. And it's so fundamental. It is. And I attend, you know, quite a few ancestral conferences, which are still really focused on food, I would say. I think most people are like, oh, the whole food diet, of course, less processed. 
we're not used to thinking about movement. Hold on, I'm going to cough. Hold on. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> we are, we are so, you know, part of that innate to humans list is also the tendency to conserve energy. So sedentarism, if you're in a, in an environment that allows it, you have to really manifest quite a bit of willpower to not use it. And so that's a big, also a big theme of my work. You know, instead of just constantly going with a willpower shame <laughs> motivation, I try to just say, let's look at our, our environments because movement is reflexive. It's it's It shouldn't have to be really anything in a natural state that you manifest out of the belief that it's good for you. So we're constantly reading or striving for more movement and at the same time bringing into our life things that disable the natural reflexive movement. So, you know, in my own home, removing furniture or um, putting ourselves outside more where movement becomes the natural response. And now it's taken out of that headspace um, where, again, that headspace is kind of unnatural to constantly be stressed at all the things that you're not doing. So I'm really trying to make it as reflexive um, for as many people as possible so that we can kind of change our perception of movement as a punishment, frankly. <laughs> yeah, on, on that note, can you talk about the difference between movement and exercise and why even super workout folks are mostly sedentary? Well, exercise is a subset of movement. So movement is any change in physical position, but exercise is when you set out to do movement, usually rhythmic in nature, but certainly movement that uses your musculoskeletal system for the purpose of being healthy. So it usually, or, or for to reap some sort of physical benefit. So it has predetermined parameters around it. I'm going to do it for 30 minutes. I'm going to do it for 45 minutes. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to run through these postures. I'm going to walk for four miles, you know, like where it has a mode, which is the activity that you're choosing to do. And, and you've already, you put boundaries around it and also nothing, no other need is usually being met. No other biological demand or, or lifestyle demand is being met while you're doing it. So most people don't exercise while they're working. Most people don't exercise while they're parenting. Most people don't exercise while they're nourishing other relationships, right? These are all the to-do things on our to-do list. And so it's usually pulled out and done in isolation. So exercise is movement, but there are many other movements that are not exercise. So there's a, um, uh, it's spatial. It's, it's like a space time thing to me. I usually draw it in a Venn diagram where there's a big circle with the word movement written around that circle, but exercise is a small circle inside that circle. One of the reasons to call out um, the definitions that we use as being active or an exerciser versus sedentary or couch potato is the definitions between those two are usually determined by if you exercise or not, not if you move or not. So you can have people who are very fit, who exercise regularly, they're getting that daily bout of exercise. But mathematically, if you compare total time available for movement 
relative to the time that you exercise, the difference between exercisers and the way that we do it and non-exercisers is like the difference of an hour or two a day at most. So you're looking at like four to 8% of total time. So while culturally or relatively, there's a big difference between exercising and non-exercising compared to us in a sedentary culture, even if you're an exerciser where you're active 8% of the day, but sitting all the other time around it compared to, I don't know, say a Bardi or um, a Hadza member, like of a hunter or gathering tribe, people who are subsisting on wild food sources primarily and fully engaged and surrounded by nature because there's lots of types of movement, including temperature variation and sun exposure and element exposure, et cetera. Um, the difference between those two groups, a marathoner in an otherwise sedentary context and someone who doesn't exercise at all, but moves kind of continuously com- in a complex way throughout the day, the difference between those two is vast, tremendously vast. So one is a, is a true moving group and the other one is a tiny bit of movement and otherwise sedentary tech. So I, for um, scientific purposes, there's a lot of confusion to why, why is sitting the new smoking, for example? Like, so people in the health world were kind of freaked out at the idea that it didn't really seem to matter tremendously if you exercised regularly because all of the sitting around the exercise time puts you in that same um, all-risk mortality group compared to a non-exerciser. Exercisers and non-exercisers kind of do about the same. And so it's like, well, it's because we need to delineate. We just have a perception that we're moving compared to everyone else. But really, compared to other humans in all times, we're pretty sedentary. And exercisers have just as many health problems as the sedentary, I learned from you, which is really fascinating. So for me, learning this has been incredibly freeing because I don't have this guilt anymore of, oh, I'm not exercising. I don't have an hour today to take away from my toddler and my business and my life. And I learned to just um, incorporate movement into my daily life. Oh, so easy. Like moment to moment, I'm thinking, can I get down and do this on the floor? Can I be in a squat when I do this? Um, let's go outside for a couple hours. I'm going to take the dog on another walk this afternoon. And so can you talk about your, um, stack your life thing? Cause it's so brilliant. It's really changed my life. Well, it's just permaculture, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. So permaculture is the idea that like, nature's been doing this for a really long time. Let's take some cues to looking at maybe the cultural way we've been doing something because of before maybe we had other information, the belief that it had to be done this way. Um, and I use mo- I use monocrops a lot as an example. So the way we tend to approach movement is very similar to like um, big agriculture monocrop like I'm trying to like mass produce one thing which would be you know one plant but it's really maybe like one type of move like I'm going to have this rhythmic you know motion of my body and I'm going to do it a lot in this short period of time and you kind of weed out all the other movements around it but again um, everything else doesn't really flourish in the situation where you weed out everything around your bout of exercise. So weeding out would be your family, your friends, your other interests, your, um, 
your job, your work. And so what happens in a monocultural kind of exercise pursuance is it's very hard to grow more types of movement, like a diversity of movement, ways of using your body in lots of different ways, as well as distribution, where you're kind of not just growing in one season, for example, but moving more throughout the day. So stack your life is this idea, just as you explained so beautifully, instead of stepping away from all other things you do to do a repetitious movement at a high density for a short period of time, you go, okay, like instead of moving 60 minutes today, I'm going to move 300 minutes, but none of those minutes are going to look exactly the same. They don't necessarily have to be bumped up against each other, but you know, they can a little bit. And maybe you're going to go at slower rates at some times because you're also um, parenting and I, and also modeling movement for the younger people in your life. Maybe, maybe moving with people who have different abilities than you, which again is a community humanity kind of way of, of stacking. Um, maybe you're going to, um, go out and harvest. And instead of always harvesting at one, maybe you're harvesting for your own nourishment, for your own medicine, for your own work, instead of only harvesting at the same level, because we don't have the pressure of survival to do it. It has more of like a hobbyist Mm -hmm. ability right now because we're doing it in a state of otherwise abundance. Instead of like going, I'm going to take the easiest, you learn how to bend and, and move a little bit farther to spread out your collection over not only a body of plants, but over your own body as well. And so it's just... It's just recognizing that movement has always for humans fit into all areas of their life. There were no areas of your life that weren't facilitated by your own movement, whatever that capacity is. And so it's really recognizing like, oh, I really, my brain, your brain is shaped by the idea that movement happens during exercise time and all other time is non-exercise time like that it's a it's a cultural bias it's it is it's a perception that we have that i'm really trying to to shatter which is no movement can go everywhere and exercise isn't a human need the movement is it's just a way to monocrop it when when the preference is for one type of easily produced fruit i guess if you will so you lose your you lose your taste for other fruits, like I think of, again, that um, the result of kind of an agricultural monocrop is that the your palate changes its ability to really even see certain things as food and other things as non-food. And it's the same thing with movement. So it's just, it's movement permaculture, <laughs> stack your life. And I mean, we can keep giving lots of examples of it, but just the way that you're saying, it's like you're out, you're already with your children or, you know, with your parents or other people in your community. um, And you're just really going, I can actually put my movement here. I don't have to step away from my life to get that exercise. It's all available here. If I can just change my perception of what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. 
so I want to I want to hear about your name and your great grandmother. Uh, we first connected last year on Instagram when you posted a photo of her leading her family through a forest walk, and you were writing about really feeling the call of your ancestors. And someone tagged me in the comments like check out mythic medicine she's doing ancestral stuff or whatever and then i didn't know who you were i was like okay katie bowman this is a cool photo and then like the next day someone gave me your book and i was somehow figured out that it was you i was like holy shit i love this girl and um so i was also of course immediately struck by oh like katie bowman is leading people through (laughs) the wilderness of movement just like her great-grandmother did so i'd love to hear about your name what it means for you your connection with this woman or anything you'd like to say about um you said 2018 you're going to start really trying to connect with your ancestors more well and it's interesting because in in the ancestral there's ancestral movement but there's also ancestral health so they're looking at lots of different practices through an ancestral filter and Um, I wrote a book called Movement Matters, which was really about movement ecology, which was thinking outside of, you know, again, back to movement permaculture. It's not only what you personally reap, it's what a monocultural pursuance, how that affects the entire environment, right? So there's a big call, I would say, to switch over from one way of mass producing food and distributing a little bit differently and creating different practices that don't, what's the best way that like don't take the nutrients in an area down to the bone or lower to the bone where those areas can't recover and then become non-productive. The same thing happens within our own body. Like we're often pursuing our exercise, even when it's small, it's so highly repetitious and narrow in diversity that takes our tissues like to the bone and then they can't move forward any longer. And so, but in Movement Matters, I'm tying this idea that the way we are all individually moving is affecting the way other people are allowed to have to move on the planet when when we have outsourcing privilege. Outsourcing is the idea that you could actually go get easily things in your life that other people had to move for in much different situations. And so because we have you know, this sedentary slash outsourcing privilege, we don't necessarily recognize all the other movement that is being done, often forced on our behalf. So I read a lot about how other people are moving on the planet. And one of the things that I found really interesting one day, and I promise this will tie into your question, is um, people who live in eco-based cultures So those are hunter-gatherers, but not necessarily. But again, it is people who are mostly subsisting, who are in a a more direct relationship with their landscape, meaning a situation in their landscape impacts them greatly because they can't bring in easily a bunch of other resources because there's no money or, or system to. They don't have that, and so they're not as protected from the effects of their personal behavior as we are. I would say that we're not necessarily aware of everything that's going on to bring us the things that we so easily consume. Yeah, we can so, decimate the landscape, but then go to the grocery store to buy our food. Yeah, or or we can just move away from where the landscape mm-hmm. looks a particular way. Or we can make sure that the landscape looks a particular way on the other side of the planet and never have to come mm-hmm. face to face with it. Same thing with like, you know, industrial meat 
creation. You know, it's mm. like, it's easy to see it, but it's also part of that system is that we are systematically protected from seeing it because I think that not as many people would buy into it if they were seeing it. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's like, we just, we have very big protective walls around how our own movement is shaping other things. And so in reading about these eco-based cultures, one of the things just jumped out at me, which is, um, it's a pro it's a, it's a meditative process that I subscribe to. It's a, it's like a spiritual practice of when I read, I believe whatever leaps out to me is the thing that I need to put my attention to. And this was just a statement, which was, um, kind of, a. Uh, I don't know if it's hallmark or if it's just one element that is, is observed repeatedly of eco-based cultures is they can recite 500 years of their ancestry verbally. And the, and the belief is that the ability to do that really helps cement the idea that you are connected to people that you know behind you and thus people in the future will be likewise connected to you. That, that yes, your behavior matters because you are, that you are shaping the events for the future. And so I just thought that, you know, in all, in so much ancestral understandings, it often feels so far away from you that it feels like it doesn't necessarily relate to you, that the struggle of someone else a long time ago would have any impact now. But I thought, and, and there's not always easy steps to do. It's like, well, like, I'm not going to go, like, learn how to fashion spears necessarily. Like, I can't really always see how it relates to the life that I have right now. But that one was so easy. I was like, I'd like to see how far I can get back. So I sat down with a piece of paper, and I was able to go back, like, 80 years. And I, it came to my understanding very quickly that there were certain lines within my immediate grandparents that I couldn't even go back three generations. And I thought, wow, how how interesting that maybe my behavior is related to my perception of this other thing. So I made it my 2018 activity to, to start to work backwards and, and just see what came, what came up from it. And, and I'm, and I was also motivated to do that a little bit because um, you know, there's this, as we talk in, in ancestral health, specifically, there's a kind of a tendency sometimes to, I guess maybe a co-op might not be the, the intention, but it's like, you know, you, you know that you have this kind of hunter gatherer human background that we all have. And we tend to go to the easiest way of seeing what that looks like. And it, in for us in North America, that can be like Native American, indigenous or first nation populations and just go, oh, it's like this. But then you go, okay, well, it's not that far back in a different setting. And so I can actually connect myself to my own um, roots a little bit more directly. And I don't have to take someone else's roots to fill in my blanks right now, like I can just go find my own roots and become more robustly knowledgeable about my own direct lineage. And so that day that I posted that picture was, it was, I think that maybe the day, uh, maybe right before the new year. And I just asked my mom about it and she was like, oh yeah. And she popped out 
um, all her books for her great grandmother or for her grandmother, who was her favorite person who had the same name as I did. And so I didn't necessarily know that my great grandmother, Katie, was, you know, I didn't even know she was an outdoorsy person. I, I knew her. She died when I was five and she was a she was a farmer. That whole that um, line of lineage comes from. They were heirloom apple farmers, and and I grew up on that property. I grew up in those orchards where eventually my grandfather ran them. My first, um, I you know I I produce a lot. I have a very large network, but it's because I'm a very I work a lot. Like I'm a constant worker, and I grew up working on this land, farming, laying pipe, driving tractors, driving forklifts, hauling bins of apples and eventually selling them to the public. They they would put me in this very large fruit stand in a tourist town where I would where I would run it at age seven or eight. But it was that that family, that picture, that line I would say that has maybe greatestly informed who I am right now. And my mom will say, I just, I don't know where you got a, a certain characteristics about yourself. And then she'll always be like, oh yes, I remember. I do know actually it was your grandmother, Katie. So it's funny how similar we are, I would say in nature, despite great distances and lack of maybe a ton of interaction, but we do share the name. So I don't know if you name, when you name someone, how much of that gets passed on. Mm-hmm. It's very special, I think, and very powerful too have a name resonance with an ancestor, especially because I don't, not surprisingly, you happen to have all these other resonances with her as well. Uh, yeah, this idea that your your own lineage is going to have more power for you, more learning, more of the lessons that you are in need of in this lifetime is, is really foundational to my work too. It's, you know, we have this huge uh, spiritual hunger in our culture and a huge part of that is that we don't honor our ancestors. Like us, us in the modern West, we're really, that I know of the only culture in time who has forgotten the ancestors. It's every, every other indigenous peoples that you look at, it's a major tenant of their lives. And so um, I, I just think that's really special and really beautiful. And of course, for you and I, our great grandparents, I'm going to be 37 tomorrow. I think you're about the same age. That generation, they they were all growing their own food. They all were moving in this ancestral way. You know, we were speaking about it as hunter gatherers in the past. You also spoke about modern day peoples, but it's not that far removed from us in mm-hmm. time moving this way. Right. And I think that people forget that sometimes. So it's easy to go ancestral in um, like evolutionary science. Again, there's like a, a line drawn in the sand kind of around the beginning of agriculture, like around 10,000 years ago. But you could it's a, it's a you could keep drawing lines. Another big line is the Industrial Revolution, really changing things. And then you could nuts. 250, 300 years ago. But then you could draw another line with um, the computer as another big shift in the behavior of this group of people. And then I think you can even draw another line now in smart technology, meaning constant 24 hour access to handheld. And so each one of those big leaps, it, it, it will take, it'll take 
multiple generations of people looking back on skeleton design and kind of through natural experiments to see the impact of those. But yes, like so much of like, there's definitely a difference between full, like subsisting where you're moving quite a bit, hunter gathering and agriculture. But of course there's a large continuum between the two because hunter gatherers are very broad term. Many people who fit that uh, definition were also doing some elements of farming, you know, or figuring out how to store and then ended up sprouting going, Oh, we can grow this. So obviously it's just been a slow wave to where we are right now that some humans took and other humans did not take that path because we've got, you know, different groups of humans having different behaviors. But as far as the slow movement, if you're, I think if we're going to put a, a term on this idea that you can actually grow your own food, like it seems now in some regions where there aren't access, easy access to growing spaces where that's not part of their culture in more urban settings, the belief I think is those practices are quaint, but they're not necessary. So it almost seems more hobbyist in nature and Sometimes that belief is what allows, again, those practice, uh, what allows larger groups of people to move away from them because they don't necessarily understand how those practices of, I don't know, responsibility and or maybe not as much dependence on a different system that you are really separated from, that you're not having to exchange your labor from. There is, there's an inevitable uh, adaptation of culture in that way so we're not talking about I mean we're talking about things that my grandparents I'm 42 my grandparents and my great-grandparents did and to not do it would like they couldn't imagine not doing it and they also for many of them went through the depression my dad's my dad has passed away but he was 90 so one of my parents is much older so he himself went through the depression so it kind of creates two different responses on one response is like, look at all this cheap, easy stuff, like fill up on it, put it in. And the other hand is they've been dependent on a system that easily provided and then lived through the collapse of that system. So maintaining your skills of self-reliance is also of value. So again, it's just so interesting to know that you really are shaped by the times that you're in and your perceptions of what's possible is also shaped by the times that you're in. So with ancestry, you kind of get a broader scope of how things are than if you're to only rely on your own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned you mentioned your father and when we were preparing for this interview, you let me know that he recently passed, as you just said, and that you were you were with him through that process. Can you tell me a bit about that? Well, it's interesting because I really, I mean, if I'm if I'm at fame, I came to fame or at least no recognition mm-hmm. for my work through through the um, female pelvic health world. That was my graduate work was on female pelvic floor issues. That's really my first love. Um, and so I did a lot of work in in birthing science and midwifery. And I was just really <laughs> well involved, I would say, in one bookend of the experience. But like so many of us, completely 
protected from the other end, which is the exit, right? So like really familiar with the mechanics of the entrance, but had no cultural exposure to an exit or that, that book end, which is like the phasing out of a life, you know, and, and could break down so easily as you're going through labor, you know, these stages that you're in mentally, both in many other women and then in myself as well, to see it like those, ex to see those stages mirrored, but in a death context, that's what it was like. It was like watching a reverse birth. And because of the scenario that we were in, it was like watching the equivalent to a unassisted home birth. It was an unassisted home death. And, and then recognizing that, holy cow, there are in, in his, in the same way that there are all of these people who work in, in birth, there are so many people who work in death. And I was completely oblivious to the idea of death doulas, death midwives, that how you exit matters, not only to the person, but to the people around the person. And again, going back cross-cultural, to um i i didn't have any parenting books but i had one um hunter gatherer childhoods was the book that i poured over to kind of get a sense of something broader than what you get like in what to expect when you're expecting right like a totally narrow cultural perspective i wanted something a little bit larger and in reading that book about hunter gatherer childhoods there's a very large section on grief and the fact that hunter gatherer children are regularly exposed to close loss. Like by the time they are seven or eight years old, they've lost siblings and aunts and uncles and parents. And they are shaped like they they are shaped by an understanding of um, fleeting, where I would say in our culture, we almost reject fleeting. We kind of persist with heavy attachment and the idea that we have a right for nothing to ever go away, our own life, the lives of our loved ones, our landscape. And so the juxtaposition of those two things was like, oh, this is, this is me at 42 having really my first fully participating in experience. Um, and part of how it feels is brought about by the context of it never not being a regular thing. And so that was big for me. So there was all those, like, I'm such, <laughs> I'm, I'm who I am and who I am is very, um, I'm easily able to separate myself outside of the emotions that I'm feeling to observe myself and how I feel when I'm in it. That's might be, you know, why I do the work that I do. So as it was happening, it was obviously all the things that you process, I think, during during transition and at the same time I was really interested for like the sake of how my work and that I make sense of my life through understanding biological processes so I but in, on both levels it felt like a total gift my dad was almost 90 and I was just marveling I was marveling at him his exit kind of in exactly 
the same way that he lived. So my dad was an air traffic controller and a pilot. And, and he, his death was essentially him landing a plane, like just like the full on glide of everything. There was no panic. There was no, it was just, it was, it was exactly that. It was someone watching all the pieces and just slowly touch down, like gentle all the way. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and we had, um, we have a lot, we have where I live, we have, I think, one of the last total um, donation-based hospices in the United States. So it's a non-Medicare funded and they just do whatever you want, whatever you need. Like they don't, they just, they don't shape it at all, but they're totally there for support. And it was in the last, you know, they, we had them start coming in the last maybe 10, 12 hours of his life. But, and just cause we, we're, we don't know is the same reason I had a midwife. Like, I'm pretty sure I could do this, but I don't know. Cause mm-hmm. I don't have a culture where I grew up participating in 30 of these, you know, before mm-hmm mine came along. This is going to be my first one. And even the hospice guy goes, I've never seen such an elegant, like just step-by-step transition with nothing, like really requiring, requiring nothing. So I, I just, you know, it opens up a lot of questions like, uh, and, and, you know, and simultaneously my best friend was also dying of cancer. I mean, they went with um, like within six weeks of each other. So to be involved in two processes of very different circumstances one you know one old who essentially did everything in his life and was like yeah I'm out you know I'm ready and then to be with someone who wasn't ready to go but still you know having to accept those things and just being in that space and we had two other deaths also within one within three weeks of those two and then one my brother who passed away um maybe nine months before my dad. And so like the four of those, all of different circumstances, like I just felt like I got a crash course um, in many different elements that I would, again, have never had a chance to observe. And so I just, I don't know, to me, that was very profound. Like there's something here for me to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And so I did. Yeah, that's a lot of loss in a short amount of time tell me about it. <laughs> it was a lot. And um, yeah, it, it was. And there was also a close friend who almost died because of an immediate thing, you know, a friend with young children's and just a, a flare up that came up. Oh, and then I forgot. Yeah, my and my mom in that same. So we're talking in the same 12 month period. It my mom got um, bacterial spinal meningitis. Mm as a fluke. And she was the first one. So I just really felt again, like I, like I talk about how, when like a statement will leap up to me off of the page, like I just felt like there's so much wisdom here for me. If I want to view this, not only as what's happening or what's happening to me right now, if I just want to go look at all, look at all of the information, I think that I can, gather that that changes my perspective on so many things and I don't think I would have had that if it hadn't been so concentrated Mm -hmm. you know what I mean the concentration of it was its own thing Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I I had worked in death for years uh, as a hospice volunteer and learning about home funerals. I helped to facilitate one home funeral and leading death cafes and all of that. I really helped me deal with my mom's sudden death in a car accident two years ago. And I, I think I'm a lot like you. I, I really can like see the way your mind works through a lot of your work and you're, you're so logical and rational and you question your own thinking and you're looking at the bigger picture and pulling different threads together into one thing. And I, I also had that experience of while I was like in the deepest grief also being like, what can I learn from this? And what can I weave together and, and share with others? And like, what, what am I learning here? So I'm curious if any, any part of your background, you think prepared you to deal with these better? You, you seem like someone who's just truly yourself. And that's a huge, <laughs> you know, piece of grounding when we are going through traumas or losses like that. And then I'm also curious if you see a way that this will inform your future work. What was the first part of the question? Do you, th what, what in your background prepared you to handle right. this with grace? Right. right. Oh, well, you know, you, I am, I am myself, you know, we all are ourselves. And I think I don't, I don't often feel that what's happening to other people is also happening to me. So I, I think that's, is that the definition? Is that, get, that what, what empathy is? So as someone else is struggling, it certainly initiates a compassion and a desire to help care for, be supportive in whatever way I can, but I don't also feel the despair maybe that someone else is feeling. And so probably the way that I am, I once saw on my report card, like from second grade, that the teacher wrote something like I was very stoic. And I didn't really know what that meant, but I, I recognize it now, like even as a child and my son is very similar. Um, and it's not that it's, it's not a lot. It's not a lack of emotion. I often just, you know, I'll joke like that, like I'm, I'm dead inside and that's not what it is. I have tremendous feelings. It's just that my behavior, like I'm able to separate them kind of in real time. And so, um, I think one way of getting through all of these situations with grace was, to, I guess, just to, like, I didn't feel, like, I, I, I don't usually feel overcome by emotion. I just, I have them and I watch them as I have them. And I don't know if it's a coping mechanism or if it's just the way that I am and always would be no matter what, but that it was helpful to be like, I'm here. I'm, I wasn't additionally drained by my own feelings about how someone else felt. I had my own feelings about how I felt and I had the actions that I needed to take because all of this is so much 
work. It's like additional to your life. Like you want to talk about adding exercise, adding the process of grief requires space. And then there's the details of all the things that actually need to be done. And so it puts more fatigue in your, in your life. And so I think that that skill set, um, definitely came in handy to keep it from being overwhelming. I imagine when I look at it on paper and and all this time where all this was going on, I was still up flying around and doing press and PR and, and interviews. And, and, and so I think I would have been particularly drained if I had more of an emotional response than I actually did. But frankly, I think the skill set that probably kept me in a state of grace was how much I move. Mm -hmm. The idea that as I was caretaking my dad, um, like I would walk to his house to be able to do it. That So like I was tending to myself because I already had a, a movement practice, a non, not an exercise practice, but a movement practice. And um, and, and because I didn't, you know, I think of emotions, I think of, I think of the stress of being chased by something, you know, they'll call it like a fight or flight response. You have these hormones and things that come up with feelings. And if you're being chased by something, alongside your hormones or feelings is the movement that helps you metabolize them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. If you are reading an email or getting a phone call that creates that same amount of hormone, but it's not with movement, it's, it sits I, I, a lot longer for you to like, like you're now you're trying to physically process it without any physical. So it becomes purely emotional. And so that also might be, um, one of the reasons that maybe I can metabolize how I feel like for me when I'm stressed or sad, um, or distressed or trying or trying to ruminate for me to sit down and do it is to almost make no progress for me to go take a 10 mile walk is to work through everything I no longer feel those emotions in the same way and so I think I do think that movement is really helpful and if we talk again about our ancestors and I think about grieving practices as being so physical often in nature, like the physical movements of working with uh, the passed on body. Mm -hmm. I think of the dancing and the celebration and how there's these huge, robust, even the wailing, even the, mm -hmm. you know, what's that? Keening. Yes. I love and that so word. What happens, what does grief look like in a sedentary culture? This might be it. And so um, you know, we talk about, you know, rituals and and again, in that ancestral perspective, too, is there wouldn't be a lot of sitting around with how you feel because you still have to eat, you still have to move. And so I wonder how much of the burden of our emotion, you know, not to say that emotions are burdened, but 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 the 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 machinations of emotions 
are the way that we perceive them because again, we are a sedentary culture. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that grief, as with all emotions, gets stuck in the body. If, if it's not worked out, if it's not moved out. I've certainly had that experience. That's my whole life. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, again, we use the term emotion. I mean, this is the, this is the issue with these words and these terms and the sciences that we use to understand. That's our point of knowledge, right? And so much of our knowledge is going back to these definitions defined by someone else, like that emotions are non-physical, but of course they have a physical component. And so do, I mean, they're happening within your body. They're happening within your brain. There's a movement of proteins and things when you're having these. And so I don't think that we can really as easily parse thoughts and emotions, feelings, the mind from our physical body that we've done now, because those, again, that's just based on how the people thought before us that gave us the names and, and the small portions of how things work and so much is still in progress. So yeah, I would, I would just say that, that my, my state of grace (laughs) comes from my state of movement. In this case, that was definitely helpful. That really inspires me to, to move my grief out more. I've, I've been feeling it so strongly this week with my birthday coming up tomorrow. It somehow seems harder than my last two birthdays with my mom gone. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've just been crying all week and I, now I can, I can think about that and try to move that out when I am, when I'm moving. Or were there any movements that you did together, you know, to, to engage? Mm -hmm. I, I was just watching a movie and it had the end of a funeral and then I watched, you know, the six pallbearers carry the body. And I was and I was like, oh, look, like there's a there's a ceremony in physically carrying. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I look for movement in everything. My bias is movement. And so, of course, there's always all these other things. But I I went to another funeral where it was wheeled out. The pallbearers were wheeling and there was certain motion. But I wonder if so much of processing things like your relationship, your your duty to another thing, the fact that you'll carry them on, that you embodying this the physical of the spiritual element, like what what's the catharsis of that? What's the impact of that? And so again, I look for how much movement has gone out of our death practices when it is it is the I mean, movement is the determiner of life in that breath is the final movement, you know, to go. And so I always think of, I'm getting ready to do a a talk for our local hospice and volunteers on this idea of movement. And it'd be interesting, just like I recommend walking book clubs, I wonder what walking grief groups Mm. would create, you know what I mean? Where there was multiple layers of self-care and then potentially also the idea of maybe how you're feeling what you're feeling is related to the body being i mean we don't think of a chair as being in a curled up position but it is mm-hmm. so maybe if you change it make maybe you would find other elements of expressing the connection to this person you're talking about but anyway i could go on and on yeah and what you said too about taking care of the body um, and the movement involved in that, I for sure, in, in all my work around home funerals and teaching people about it and hearing people's stories, 
everyone says that it, um, I don't want to say accelerated because that makes it sounds like there's an end point, but they were able to move through their grief in a much more powerful and healing way when they were directly taking care of their loved one's body after death. I, I think metabolize is just the right, mm-hmm. is the good word there because it means that like you release something and it's how quickly it's dealt with. It's it's how it's taken up and distributed. And and not to say that there's not another wave coming. There's always another wave coming, but but the that lingering, the lingering of something can be related to how our bodies are physically lingering. But yes, the um my husband who um is trained in Ayurvedic practices and philosophies he gave my dad an entire oil bath mm-hmm. afterwards and and the movement that it's there but there's also the connection you know and like a, a caretaking it was it was just a beautiful thing it was just absolutely beautiful um i want to talk about whales <laughs> <laughs> whales i was just talking about those this morning with my son oh sweet um so yeah, and whales are my childhood love as mm. well, lifelong. But you have a special thing with humpbacks, and you mentioned you mentioned a dream. Can you tell us about that? I've always had humpback whale dreams, um, a lot of water dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can tell, like, there's definitely ones that are more stressful in nature, but it would be – there's like there's, like, a couple different ones, but they – Either I'm standing around a pool or an aquarium tank that's got these glimpses. Like I know that there are three or four humpback whales in there. They never fully reveal themselves. Every once in a while they'll come up to the surface and I'm just constantly trying to to see them in their entirety. But I'm only given these like fleeting glimpses or these notions that they're right there, big shadows of their bodies and every once in a while a tail you know, or the backside. So there's that one. And then there's also where they all come into a harbor and they're lined up like ships. And I can see them all in in this row and they come up to where I am in this harbor there. So I've had slightly different versions of those two dreams regularly up until I moved to this new city when I was probably 27. And as I was driving into the new city, I came around this cove that had this harbor and I was looking down, I had the realization that this was, this this is the harbor or the cove that I had dreamt about where they all came in. And once I passed that and saw that, I never had the harbor dream again. Mm. now I have whale dreams that that are they still have elements of those first two but they're no longer in this tank you know that I can kind of get get into a little bit I'm afraid to get in but I'm also fascinated and can't move away and I'm like trying to get my some body parts in and get closer now I am coming up to beaches um and as I'm there I realize that there's a whole sw- swarm isn't the right word. Herd isn't the right word. What do you call a group of whales? Fleet. Pod. There's a, a pod. There you go. Um, there is a whole bunch of humpbacks there coming up and and moving around and 
And so that's that's the new version, but it's it's always humpbacks. It's no other type of whale. And and I'm my desire is to always just see them and to not have them keep going away in front of my eye, like for them to just stay up. And uh, yeah, it's a thing. It's totally a thing. What do what do they? I guess what do they represent for you? Like what what part of you responds to the humpback whale? That's a good question. I don't know, you know, and I, um, I never saw any whales until I went whale watching when I was probably 16 or 17. And then I saw them, you know, from a distance. And then, um, I went to, I was in French Polynesia in Tahiti one time and I was just sitting on the edge of a beach and I just was sitting there and two giant humpback whales breached mm. full body out of the water right in right in front of me like and I was just like oh my gosh it was intense and I saw their whole bodies for the first time and that was crazy and I was you know there was no one there and I'm like running back and they just didn't come back after that they kind of went away into the distance and then I drove to this other cove and the person I was with and I was like I want to see a whale right now and then one just leapt out of the water <laughs> right there and then um, another time I was with my uh, sister, one of my sisters, and we were on a whale watching boat um, again. And this was now I was, you know, 34. So it, it hasn't been too long ago. And there was whales off in the distance and all the other people were on the other side of the boat. And my sister and I were on the other side as this humpback whale went right underneath our boat and just came up. It was this, it dwarfed the boat and it was just right there for again just the two of us to see as it just and I was uh, you know what and so as I'm telling the story it's like a simultaneous fear mm -hmm. of their power mm -hmm. of their mass of their capability um and at the same time a complete is revelry the right word like just it's a reverie reverie yeah it's, mm -hmm. it's like a it's a it's a it's a reverence for their capacity. Um, and so I've always been, I, I probably would have been a whale researcher if I was not, like, because biomechanics is biomechanics, which is what I, my field of study. And I just happen to study humans, but I could easily switch to studying whales. And I considered that for a long time. <laughs> I'm also interested in, in whale communication, mm -hmm. the fact that the songs that the songs of humpback whales, they change season to season, but they do so consistently throughout the globe. Meaning you can be in an ocean that can't hear another pod, but um, their songs have like local components as well as a shared global component. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a calendar where everyone is like acknowledging that the same thing. So it's some, I mean, I'm using calendar, but it's some sort of normalizing component. So they're all simpatico globally while making slight adjustments regionally. To me, when I read that and I was like, well, there's the secret of life right there. So why won't I just work on, mm -hmm. on that? So I don't know. It's just, they, it's, it's, um, it's a, what part of me, again, everything with me is just the way that 
I think about it, you know, and it's the it's the mysticism. I mean, they're they're mysticetes, right? That's their class, their family. Mm. Baleen whales are mysticetes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm also a Pisces, if that makes any difference. Oh. People always say you're just a water person, and, uh-huh. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know. It's just always been. It's just always been. Oh. Been my thing. Yeah, I know. I feel the same way. A cetacean consciousness is so fascinating. And I was reading recently that that the humpback whale songs are incredibly information dense. Mm, Uh, Like they're geniuses at at communicating vastly important ideas that we don't know what they are, but we know they're doing it in like little units of sound. Um. Yeah, no, I feel the same with all growing up. I was like, I'm going to be like a whale researcher. I'm going to swim with whales, first of all, like every day. And then also I'm going to be learning about them. And I, God, oh, it it makes me so excited. And I also have lifelong whale dreams. And it's the same thing that you spoke about, but your real life experience where I'm in total awe and just have this reverence for them. But I'm all, there's also a fear because damn, they're big, you know, mm. and, and underwater, like, yeah, oh, there's, they're so special. Yeah, they are. They're just, they're just different and fleeting, at least from us, you know, mm-hmm. from view, they, the depths, I don't know, like, they're just, to me, they're the key. I don't even know what I mean by that, but that's the word that comes up. Like I, they are, they are the key. Yeah. yeah. As well, far as I'm concerned to something. Totally. I mean, the millions of millions of years old, one of the oldest um, animal types on the planet. Like they know shit. They know shit that we don't know. You know, right. there's well, some planetary consciousness. Right. They're right. going to be an eco-based culture too. What's in their mm-hmm. song? Something. Mm-hmm. And and they're they're mammals. They they breastfeed their babies. They give live birth. You know the sperm whales are um, matrifocal, matri matrilineal in their in their um, societal structure. Like I just they're just so cool. I'm really uh, inarticulate right now because I'm just in a state of reverie, as you spoke. I don't about. find you inarticulate <laughs> at all, but it's I mean it's just awe. Like there's not a lot of words to put to awe, but yeah. um. Also, you know, we we have a big narrative about the difference between humans and all other things in the universe, um, which is what is how nature is defined. But then, you know, I I live on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington, and so we have many orca populations, which are odontocetes. So they're they're in the cetacean family, but they're different than mysticetes, which are the baleen whales, and. Yeah, they're toothed, tooth whales, essentially. Um, But what's really interesting, and so there's a lot of whale researchers around here, is them explaining what's happened to orcas. Um, So orcas are also matrilinear because the women, they don't fight as much, so they live much longer, so they set the cultural information. They are teaching their offspring how to eat, what to eat, and so there's been over time, um, a a separation of groups of whales where now their diets are entirely different. So there are whales that eat salmon Mm -hmm. and there are whales that eat mammals, but you will not see one cross over to the other side. Again, they're taught what and how to eat by their 
by their matriarch. And and so what happens is now we've got populations in areas where the salmon is dying off and they're not transitioning to anything mm. else. They themselves are just starving to death. And of course, there's all the things like about the pollutants. Mm. But that also being said, there's there's the, the morphology of a whale. Like whales, if you just look at it on a chart, like it'd be hard to pick out the difference between one whale versus another unless you study them and they'll say no the diets are actually changing the morphology of a of a of an orca and the language so much that the language of one diet cannot speak to another orca and then you have breakoffs of ones that you know they're obviously transient and so they're trying to they actually are saying that there are different races now of orcas because of such a strong difference in behavior that they're they're creating different groups of them to fig to figure stuff and I, I was just like totally blown away because to me my perception of whales is I just have a chart of these are the whales of the sea like the complexity of of social structures and all those things it just it flies in the face kind of of so much of my other training which is again about the differences of human an ability to create like complexity and and stuff so i just i don't know i i love whales mm -hmm. yeah they've created different cultures basically those two types of orcas well, they, um, they have yeah they have completely different completely different cultures so i'm gonna ask you a practical question that relates to my life <laughs> and then one last question uh so you don't have furniture in your home and i'm going to uh, send listeners to your YouTube video. That's the house <laughs> tour because it's wonderful. It's I was like, what? You know, don't have furniture, but then like, I get it when I see. I have furniture. Your home. You have to get it when you see it, right? Yeah, yeah. You don't have like you know the normal chairs and couches, and that's not right. the focus. But um, so how did you breastfeed comfortably? Well, that's the whole thing. Com comfort usually means that you're in the position that you're in the most often. Mm -hmm. So you're, when you don't frequent one position, you are more comfortable in more positions. So I, I don't require one position to be comfortable after years of training. I can use my body in lots of different positions. And so I'm comfortable in all of them. So let me put it another way. I'm afraid that I'm going to hurt myself if I don't have, you know, this comfortable back rest when I'm nursing because oh. it's just this repetitive still motion. Sure. So the key then would be to become strong enough in your own body to hold your own body without that cushion. The way we tend to pursue... Um, for lack of a better word, you know, core strength is through doing core exercises, but we're doing the core exercises and then we're putting up the device behind us that allows us to outsource the movement to it. So the slow phasing out of something to lean on would in fact be your training program for not needing it. Mm -hmm. um, going cold turkey though is going to end up with, you know, an achy back or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, so you just have to transition like you transition to anything else. Like I certainly didn't like you can, you can take a tour of my home right now, but it didn't always look like that. It's, it's been slowly, um, 
it's been slowly adapting to how much so training is uncomfortable, right? If you've ever trained for anything, the bout of doing the exercise is the uncomfortable part. And maybe after a little bit, you're sore. Like if you did some exercises, like you you know that the soreness is coming from the fact that you're adapting to what you just did. So I change my house when I'm ready to face, you know, essentially a bout of training. And so mm. it's it's changed over seven years. So how you see it now is not like I had, you know, what so many people have. And then I just said, that's it. And then threw everything out. Like just one little piece goes at a time and slowly, but surely my body is, um, stimulated to come along. So I'm not sure what you have behind you. What are you resting on? It's a chase lounge that I use now all the time, every time we nurse multiple times a day. So I would suggest if you wanted to change, if you wanted if you wanted to work more of your body while nursing, right? So nursing is a movement for you and for the baby. You've just done it in a really repetitive way. So the idea of not doing it that way um, maybe is a little freaky. But I also like to talk about movement ecology. So... I think for many people who are trying to go into breastfeeding and who have issues with it or struggles with it, like certainly so many people do, I think one of the reasons is because they're using a single position. And when it doesn't work, perhaps for Mm. that baby's mouth or strengths or your own, then the idea that you could explore something different besides what's on the cover of every single breastfeeding book, which is the one (laughs) position that it's supposed to happen you know, you just have to go look at, um, again, cross-cultural population of women who aren't sedentary. And you'll find that during the course of their day, you know, they'll often nurse whilst continuously laboring, mm-hmm. like doing their work. And, um, you know, like like I'll nurse on walks. I'll just hold them while I'm still hiking because we still have seven miles to go. And <laughs> the sitting down and going for just this, you know, brief nursing thing isn't going to work necessarily for anybody. And, you know, how to like, if I had a younger toddler nursing, then I'm just going to bend over from the hip and let him latch on for a little bit and then stand up and go on my way. Like there is so much more diversity available than what's depicted in the magazine, in the pop culture. And, but it does require that, uh, that something change. So for example, sorry to ramble, um, take where you normally nurse and create a set of cushions in front of it where you're still comfortable, but in a different position. And then try it there. Knowing that if you start to get uncomfortable, just get back into the position that you are comfortable. And so now you have a training program that's a little bit different, but you're not pushing yourself through lots of discomfort. And it's interesting. We don't necessarily think about the baby's strength, their form of breastfeeding is they can only develop that strength to the form that you give them. So when you change something, it's, it would not be abnormal for the baby to be like, my mouth and my head and my neck has never done this movement before. Yes, I've nursed, but I've never nursed at this angle. So for like a a bit of a struggle, perhaps of going, I can't, I can't hold my head at this angle. and But then over time, they work it out. 
And then therefore, your change in position is also affecting their robusticity, their ability to have more diverse movement as well. Mm-hmm. You have two wonderful podcast episodes called Breastfeeding Ecology, too, yeah. for anyone listening who might be interested. Um, okay, thank you. That that does inspire me. It makes me feel a little less nervous a little about bit. trying something else. You're changing tiny bits, and you can always... The thing is like you can always go back to the thing that you changed from. So so if the fear of change is keeping you from changing, then give yourself permission to change for two minutes and know that, oh, I can just always stand up and go back and do the other thing. I can move to this other thing. So it's 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 just not really that big of a deal mm-hmm. in in theory. The bigger hurdle is our own personal um, inertia. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like it, you have to overcome. You're having to manifest a little bit of willpower to overcome the easiest way to do something. And so I remove a lot of my furniture so I don't have to muster that part of my brain. I just have to do it because guess what? My house is shaped like this now. (laughs) There is no comfortable place to sit. And that's not really true. But I meant there is no place really to do a ton of plopping. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) my house is my personal trainer, essentially. But I, I have chosen that. Like, so I don't feel a lot of like, oh my gosh, I wish it was different because I could just make it different if I wanted to. But at the top of my list was move more. So I am essentially bemoaning getting the thing that I want, but that's just how it goes. <laughs> I, I'm recording this podcast differently than I ever have before. I'm holding the microphone so that I can be moving while you're speaking. And I, in one of your podcast episodes, you like yell up at the microphone on your desk. You're like, sorry, I'm in a squat. <laughs> <laughs> you like, gotta stay oh, moving. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Um. And because I I would end podcast interviews with so much pain because I had just been like sitting rigid in a chair the whole time. I don't want to keep doing that. No, and you don't have you don't have to do it. And I think that a lot of us assume that so many of the things that we do, this is what stack your life means, is that so many of the things that we have to do, the there's a thing that you might have to do, but the way you're doing it is very malleable. So you when we think I can't do it the way that I was doing it, you infer that you can't do the thing. It's like podcasting is sedentary, therefore I can't podcast. It's No, you've just always sat down for a podcast. You can keep podcasting, which is good for your work, which is good for your family, but you can also keep moving while you podcast, which is good for your work, which is good for your family, and it's also good for you. And so it's just seeing that the rigidity of the mind is that, is really just about habit. We can't imagine doing things in ways that we haven't done them before. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned this idea a couple times so far today, and it it's something that is really a central theme of this podcast for me and the work I want to be doing as far as encouraging other people in their own lives. And it's something that I spoke about in the intro to my most recent podcast with Stephen Herod Buner. I quoted him quoting James Hillman, who uses this uh, Latin word notitia, which means 
the um, attentive noticing of the soul. So you spoke about how when you're reading something or when, when something happens in your life that you really notice and pay attention to, this is what you wrote to me. My belief is words or phrases that catch my eye are the signaling of what I need to think about, ponder, be challenged by, and embrace. So what is, what is the phrase that you use to um, tell me about this and how do you use this in your life? Well, it's, it's a Lectio Div- Divina, Lectio Divina. And it's a, it's a, a Christian or a Catholic tradition of reading scriptures, and I believe the process is you read the scripture, not really, like being very relaxed at whatever phrase jumps out at you, and then you take just that phrase, not even the context or the passage or anything else, just that phrase, only that phrase. And then you meditate upon that phrase and then let the understandings or the questions or the next step just kind of upwell Mm. from you. Like you're not, it's not a critical thinking exercise. It's just kind of like a mantra almost (laughs) you, but that you already know the thing that you're about to expose yourself to and the flag that your body threw to call your attention to it was that phrase. And, and so I, I use Lectio. I mean, I think that the term Lectio Divina relates like specifically to scripture. It's just the way that I believe I'm interacting with the world on all levels. It happens on Instagram. (laughs) It doesn't matter if it's, um, um, a billboard that I drive by. It's just when when there is a group of words together that I pass and then that phrase or, or key word or whatever just sticks with me. It doesn't even have to be related to the context of what I was exposed, what, what surrounded it when I was exposed to it. So if I see it on a billboard, I'm not going, you know, like, oh, that brand must hold some. It's just that those phrases came out that I already was looking for those phrases somewhere and my body called my attention to it or my mind called my attention to it as my body was passed and then I just know that there's something coming as soon as I just think about only that phrase and then it's like the answer to a question I was thinking about so it's I think that it's always all within me I'm just letting myself in on an experience when a part of me that's wiser than maybe the part of me doing this podcast <laughs> recognizes and kind of is giving me the information in small bits and to just not resist that. So, you know, the meditations come up spontaneously throughout the day. So that's the way I, <clears throat> I mean, ultimately it's a self-communication, just one part of myself <laughs> with another part of myself lesson in form. But that's just, I have to, I, I, I didn't pay attention to it for a long time. I think it'd be more like, huh, I wonder why that left out and then went on with my day. But once I tuned into um, this process and just as a shout out to my best friend who just passed away, it was her um, or maybe it was she that brought me to this process. Um, It just it changed everything. Like I, I found that again, maybe it's almost like, um, it's like 
spirituality permaculture or meditation permaculture. So instead of needing a tremendous amount of time or like a 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour to go sit quietly and let those up well, I've just kind of let them up well in one minute here, two minutes, six minutes here by paying attention to like, oh, this is me signaling that there's an ins that that I have an insight that I that's been downloaded and I'm ready for. So it's just a way of of stacking those moments of clarity, kind of distributing them into my life rather than again seeking um, or only seeking an outside practice outside of parenting and driving around and and working and and eating. Like they, it just can happen within all of that context. Mm, beautiful. I love that. Thank you. Um, okay, I suppose this is the moment where you tell people uh, where they can find you if you have anything coming up. You've got eight books out. Is that you got an so awesome many. podcast? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, if you go to nutritiousmovement.com, that is where everything is organized. So you can figure out, I mean, I think everyone knows. If they're a podcast listener, you can find the podcast through that page. If you love pictures and social media, you can hook up, you know, with my Instagram. That way, if you're a reader, you can look through, I don't know, 300 blog posts over the last 10 years. And and there's eight books and there's a way to determine which one's for you. If you just want the movement part and just work on the specific moves, you know, there's videos. So you, you can figure out you know who you are and the information that you need. And from that page, you can get to any aspect of my work that would best suit you. Mm, yeah, you have a ton of content out there. But you know. the website is amazing. <laughs> you just redid it. I noticed it's phenomenal. It's so easy to navigate and interact with. And that, like you said, find what you need. Yeah. And live live stuff, if you like live, you know, I, I teach different retreats throughout the world. Um so you can look on there because sometimes just doing the live, um, I'm all about vitamin community again. So that's another element I'm trying to add back into life. And, you know, I used to teach people one-on-one -on -one for 10 years before I ever really became an online or a book entity. So I'm actually trying to transition back to doing more one-on-one, -on -one, hands-on, face-to-face, because I think that in this day and age, that you, when you and I talk, there's more than the words. There's there's tone and there's facial expressions and other levels of communication that we just can't recreate in the digital. So so there's also live opportunities if that's your jam. Mm. Uh, hopefully someday that will be my jam and <laughs> I'll be hanging with you. Doing that, I could use a lot more just movement, endless movement inspiration. I, I feel, I was telling my husband this morning, um, incredibly hopeful about my ability to break these decades-long pain patterns and just feel comfortable and happy and exuberant in my body for once. So thank you for all your work and thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find my blog, handmade herbal medicines, and a lot more at mythicmedicine.love. 
While you're there, be sure to click the black banner across the top of the page to take my quiz, Which Magical Herb is Your Spirit Plant? It's a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with the medicine that you're in need of. If you love the show, please consider supporting my work at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Um, there's some cool rewards there, like exclusive content, free access to my herbal ebook and online course, and the ability to chat with me. I am a crazy busy and overwhelmed mom, and adding another project into my life with this podcast is a questionable move. But I'm also so excited about it and just praying that the Patreon will allow me the financial wiggle room to keep doing it. Another way that you can support if that's not an option is to head over to iTunes and subscribe and review the podcast. That would be super helpful. Thank you. And thank you to Marie Sue for providing the music that I use. That's Marie with two E's, S-I-O-U-X. This is from her song, Wild Eyes, one of my favorites. Uh, Check out Marie Sue. Beautiful music. Thank you, and I look forward to next time. Bye.